Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Deepali Pal, Assistant Professor in the Department of Applied Sciences and founder of a lab that she calls the Three R's Lab at Northumbria University in the north of England. Dr. Pal graduated with her medical degrees from Manipal University in India in 2008 and then went on to collect her master's in medical genetics the following year, and she completed her PhD entitled Induced Pluripotent Stem Cell Reprogramming of Human Prostate, and that was in 2014. She was Marie Curie, a European Union Doctoral Research Fellow at Newcastle University, and has worked as both a research associate and postdoctoral fellow at the same institution. Dr. Pal is currently principal investigator on a three-year project, which is looking at 3D bioprinted microtissues to construct patient-specific non-animal technologies in the development of drugs to treat cancer. Pretty cool stuff. Dr. Pal's research expertise is in pediatric leukemia, and she's passionate about developing safer and kinder treatments for children who are dealing with cancer. She describes herself as an innovative medical academic specializing in cutting-edge multidisciplinary research, and perusing her CV, that just about sums it up. Outside of medicine, Deepali loves to cook healthy meals, and because she recognized we don't eat enough fruit and veg, she founded a blog on Instagram called Veg Fruits and Mushrooms that provides five-a-day recipes. Uh, I think, actually, given my fascination with food, and especially Indian food, we're going to be sharing some recipes. Dipali loves keeping active, is a keen runner, and besides this, she and her husband are proud parents to three felines uh, named, amusingly, Kit Kat, Tilly, and the best of the lot, Tony Smoke Soprano, or Smokey, who she describes as catankerous and um. A meowsing, or a meowsing, a meowsing. (laughs) Very, very funny. So anyway, Dr. Dipali Pal, it's fantastic to have you here today. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Jonathan and EMJ. Thank you so much for welcoming me to this podcast, and I'm very excited to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you. And as I say, uh, when we're done and dusted, uh, you're going to give me some recipes because I, I love my cooking. So tell us, tell us, first of all, what, what, what inspired you to pursue a career in medicine and what led you to specialize in the field of pediatric cancer? I wanted to study medicine because I've wanted to find out more about myself, i.e. human beings. So medicine basically tells us how the body functions from life, from birth to death. And if we understand that, then obviously we can figure out what happens when things go wrong and importantly, how we can rectify that. So that was my main ambition for pursuing medicine. And pediatric cancer, what what was the, the, what got you going there? So when I was um, a foundation year doctor, so that's a junior doctor, we are posted in different wards, so we rotate, and I was posted in the medical oncology ward, and that's where I was treating or help treat children and as well as adults as well with cancer, and I saw the effects of chemotherapy, that is the mainstay of treatment in cancer, and I saw how detrimental it can be to any person, never mind a child. So 
specifically I was treating this young girl with leukemia and I saw how she went through chemotherapy. I think that experience has lingered with me. And at that point in time, I decided that we can't just continue with how things are, but we need to develop better treatments. Of course, we are doing that. And I guess although leukemia is the commonest cancer in children, more than 650 children are diagnosed with leukemia every year in the UK. Interestingly, it is also the most curable cancer, or at least one of the most curable cancers. So over 90% children they will cure, who've got leukemia, will be cured. So it, the most common cancer is actually commonly cured. But although that is promising and we have made great advances thanks to the scientists and the amazing clinicians, however, we can't really sit and relax because the treatment is so um, has got such drastic side effects. It's not just immediate side effects. When we are thinking about children, there's also long-term side effects, which affect the quality of life as the children are growing up. And a child is developing. So when a child goes through these chemotherapeutic regimens and the treatment is particularly long, it can span between two to three years, then it can have effects on the developing brain, on the developing bone. And in fact, some of the key side effects of such treatments include neurocognitive impairments. So that's why I decided that we really need to think about better treatment options for children's cancer. And in order to do this, I had to pursue research. So you studied for your initial medical qualifications in India, and then you moved to the UK where research became your career. Talk to us about those career choices and what intellectually floats your boat. I, I've got a very clear picture that emotionally you're you're moved by looking after children with cancer and trying to find kinder ways you know primum non nocere of 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 treating the disease so tell us about your career choice that took you into research and away from the clinic absolutely so i think first we need to acknowledge that um children's leukemia is commonly cured and then we think about the clinical challenges the clinical challenges in children's cancer include the treatment toxicity, also treatment resistance, which can lead to treatment failure. And now we really need to think about research that comes up with improved medicines, better drugs, that have reduced side effects, but are also more effective, where the chances of treatment resistance, so treatment resistance is when the cancer resists the treatment. So it stops listening to the treatment and it basically is there's treatment failure due to that. It hides from the treatment. So right now we really need to understand how that is happening and how we can rectify that. So when we think about treatment resistance in childhood leukemia, there are several mechanisms involved. And one key mechanism is actually what is known as the cancer niche or the cancer microenvironment. So what do I mean by this? Like us, cancer cells, they don't live in exclusion. They live, they're not solitary creatures. They actually interact with their neighbors. So when we think about leukemia, leukemia is a cancer of the blood and bone marrow. The leukemia cells make friends with the surrounding bone marrow cells. And when they make friends with the surrounding bone marrow cells, they actually get these surrounding bone marrow cells to help them, to help them grow and become more aggressive in the patient. 
and also to help them hide from different kinds of treatments, including chemotherapy. And they also exchange presents. They exchange presents and receive goodies. And if there is too much rubbish accumulating in their houses, such as from chemotherapy, then they dump this rubbish into the neighbor's home. And this is a key mechanism and we have to understand it. But importantly, we also have to target it in the clinics. And that is what I feel is really key not just understanding science for the nature of it, which is important, but also understanding what, what we can do to make a difference in the clinics and really help our patients. And therefore, this has been the aim of my research. My research group that you mentioned, Priyas Lapal, I established it at Northumbria University. And here, the research we do has two key aims. One is to find better treatments for children's leukemia treatments that are safer with reduced toxicity and also kinder, treatments that have that minimize the chance of them failing. So there's a reduced risk of treatment resistance. And the second is how do we actually find these better treatments? For that, we need improved research tools. So that is the second aim of my research. I'm really intrigued by the the description you gave. I think it's, it's quite charming, actually. Um, it makes them sound almost cancer cells sound almost affable, which of course they're not. Um, and you know, with evil intent, if you will. Um, but I, I really like the way of uh, that you've described it. So tell us a bit more about your inspiration and, if you will, the mission statement for your lab. So the the two mission statements for my lab. So the research we do here at Northumbria University has two key goals. One, we want to understand the cancer in children. Our focus is on childhood leukemia, which is a cancer of the blood and bone marrow. We want to understand not just how the cancer grows, but how it hides from therapy. Who are its friends and how are these friends helping the cancer? So we can really target that in the clinics. And that is the ultimate objective, to find information that can help us treat the cancer. Second is how we do the research. We want to do the research using methods and research tools that are actually clinically translatable, i.e. we want to use research methods that can mimic the patients in the hospital. And second, we want to use research method that gives us data that we can actually, that would be meaningful to use for our patients and clinics. So clinically translatable models. So here there is a key challenge that we are addressing. We all recognize that cancer is a dreadful disease. Better therapies are needed. We need improved cures. So we need to improve our treatments. We need to develop better medicines. However, cancer drug development is met with a very high drug attrition rate. Drug attrition rate means that the drug actually fails when it reaches the clinic. Only 7% of cancer drugs that have reached the clinical trials get approved. So why is this happening? A, lo a lot of the times this happens because of the research tools we used, which we call preclinical models. Now, these preclinical models, there are several types. And the ones that are commonly used especially when we think about children's leukemia, are mice models. 
or animal models or in vivo models. Now, these are valuable models. We do use mice models to help understand this dreadful disease and to find better treatments for this dreadful disease. However, what I'm delighted to say is that my research group has developed tools and has developed new methodology that reduces our dependence and reliance on these mouse models. So to give an example, we use stem cell technology. We use human stem cells. So you mentioned my PhD was on induced pluripotent stem cell reprogramming. So what are these? In 2008, round about there, Professor Shinya Yamanaka developed an amazing technology where he showed we could take any cell in our body and we can convert it to a cell that behaves like an embryonic stem cell, i.e., what is an embryonic stem cell? It can give rise to any type of cell in the body. Usually, embryos are used for this purpose, but in order to come up with a technology that was more ethically sound, Professor Yamanaka showed that you could take any cell in the body and reprogram it to this induced pluripotent stem cell. And since then, this has been a breakthrough in stem cell research. Here, I've used this induced pluripotent stem cell technology. In fact, it won uh, Professor Yamanaka and Professor John Gurdon. They both won a Nobel Prize for this discovery breakthrough research. So in my research, I use this technology to work with induced pluripotent stem cells. And I use these induced pluripotent stem cells to make different cell types in the body. So these are human-induced pluripotent stem cells. I'll refer to them as iPSCs. And from here, I can differentiate them or I can add reagents to allow them to become any cell type I want. So I can generate a wide variety of different bone marrow cells. I've also developed new methods. So I just don't develop these cells, but I, I can actually grow them in the lab. And I can grow them in the form of mini organs, which we called organoids. So what is the difference? What is the key speciality about a mini organ? If we go into the lab and do tissue culture, a lot of tissue culture is done in a two-dimensional format. So when you look down the microscope, there are flat cells. However, we are not two-dimensional beings. We are three-dimensional. And each cell has got a specific aspect to it called polarity. It has a top and a bottom, and cells seem to know which is the top and which is the bottom. So when we have in our, a three-dimensional organism like we are, then when these different cells interact, like I was saying, leukemia cells interact with the surrounding bone marrow cells, they don't just interact them being flat structures, they interact them in a 3D conformation. And it's important to recapitulate this in the lab so the data we get can be meaningfully translated into the clinics. So that is, again, another key objective of my research, to come up with research methodologies that are clinically translatable and that reduce the dependence on animal models or mouse models. Because at the end of the day, although mouse models are very useful, a mouse is not human. And the mouse bone marrow is not 100% identical to the human bone marrow. So people who are not familiar with medical research um, are not aware that to bring a drug from the laboratory uh, to to the to the the ward to the to the patient in the ward 
it does have to go through a number of species so that you can try and overcome these issues. But of course, you've done a very nice job explaining that. Uh, but you also hinted at the fact that there are ethical issues with using animals. And of course, there are a lot of people who abreact when they hear that that uh, scientists are using uh, animals for experiments. But, you know, the the end product is extremely important. And I think it would be fair to say that there isn't a scientist doing research today who doesn't think about these issues and wish that we could entirely do without using experimental animals. Is, is that fair? Yes, I would say that right now there is still a dependence on um, using mouse models for cancer research, including leukemia research. However, this is changing, and that's where I'm really very pleased that we have come up with these alternative technologies that do not use mouse models, that do not use even cells from mice. So we call them animal-free technologies because uh, we don't rely on anything that's animal-derived. We use reagents and we use cells that are either derived, obviously, in an ethical fashion from human beings or from other chemical substances. And the benefit of this is we've seen that we've been able to bring about 75% replacement in animal usage via these non-animal technologies. But that's not enough because it is important to reduce the reliance on animal models and to replace animal models with um, clinically relevant non-animal technologies. However, these non-animal technologies must serve a purpose, otherwise no one will use them in clinical research. So in our, we've published recently a paper in Cell Reports Medicine, where we've shown that we don't just develop a model, but we actually implement and apply the model. And in doing so, we find a new gene. We actually find a gene or rather we discover a function, a new function of a gene, because the gene was always there. So we find that this gene called N-cadherin or CDH2 helps these leukemia cells to talk with the bone marrow cells that I was talking about, to talk with the neighboring bone marrow cells. And it causes, it coaxes the neighboring bone marrow cells to help them grow and also to find protection from treatment. That's all well and good, finding about N-cadherin, but what do we actually do with it, with this information? We actually find that this N-cadherin can be targeted, and there is a drug that can specifically attack this interaction mediated by N-cadherin between the leukemia and the surrounding bone marrow, and this drug is called ADH1. So here what we see is that uh, when we look at ADH1, ADH1 is a drug that can target CDH2, so it is a CDH2 antagonist. ADH1 has been in clinical trials to treat solid cancers, such as melanomas and pancreatic cancers. And in those clinical trials, it had a very well-tolerated toxicity profile, so very low side effects. Here we found that ADH1 is also effective in children's leukemia and not just by its own, but also in combination with dexamethasone. So when we talk about treating children's cancer, one thing we need to bear in mind is we need to think about drug combinations because that is how children's cancer are treated, not just with, or any cancer, not just with one drug, 
but with a combination of different drugs. And the benefit of using a combination of different drugs is, again, to reduce the occurrence of treatment resistance. So you're not just attacking one cancer pathway, so the cancer can change. You're attacking several cancer pathways, so that's very important. So any drug we find, we have to see whether it can work well with the other cancer drugs. And we actually find that ADH1 not only has a low toxicity profile, but it also works well with the other cancer drugs. Namely, we've tested dexamethasone, which is a commonly used steroid. And we see that ADH1 does not cause any additional toxicity to dexamethasone. So um, you mentioned uh, a 90% cure rate for this uh, wretched disease. Uh, I know in my lifetime that has gone up dramatically. What have the big wins been other than what you've just been talking about? And where is there, what are the remaining challenges? I guess it's certainly the other 10%, right, that we can't cure. Yes, absolutely. So we do see that um, a very good news or a positive story in treating children's cancer is the high cure rates. And it is over 80 to 90 percent. It, it is in that ballpark. However, we cannot, although that is very promising and I'm very grateful we have that cure rate, it is very nice to know that the most common children's cancer is commonly cured. I think that is the first major step. However, these are children we are treating. We are treating them for a long time period. And therefore, it is important to think now, to now think about the side effects of the treatment or the effects of the treatment on the growing child, as well as how it will affect their quality of life. And despite all the new advances, and there's been several of these, the treatment still remains toxic. The treatment can become resistant, in which case there can be treatment failure. And there is also relapse where children are cured and then again, to come back with the cancer. So these are key challenge areas that we need to address. What are the big um, advances we've made in this? One I would say is targeted therapy. So chemotherapy will attack both healthy cells and cancer cells. Targeted therapy will only attack cancer cells because all cancer cells have an Achilles heel. This is known as an oncogene. So they overexpress an oncogene and we can use therapy to specifically target these cells that are overexpressing this, uh, this um, oncogene. So this is known as oncogene addiction because the cancer cells are reliant on this oncogene to live and to drive their proliferation. So I think targeted therapy is very important. Besides that, we also have targeted immunotherapy. So targeted immunotherapy basically helps our immune system to specifically attack the cancer cells. I think these are absolutely major advances and they are all moving towards reducing the side effects that we see with um, existing chemotherapy. Another challenge that remains is CNS leukemia. So high-risk leukemia and certain kind of leukemia, they can go and involve the central nervous system. And this is when the prognosis is quite dismal. So this is another area we need to challenge. Why is the leukemia spreading to the brain? Why is it getting attached to the brain, especially to the layers of the brain known as the meninges? And again, can we target this? So I see the research as 
three steps. One, we need to find out the correct research tools to use to answer these important questions. Second, we need to understand the mechanism. How is this cancer growing? How is this leukemia going to the central nervous system? And how is this leukemia interacting or behaving to survive and to protect itself for therapy? And third, we need to actually find a way to treat it in the clinic. So these are, I feel, the three key things that we still need to address. Right, okay. So you recently led a study working with colleagues across the United Kingdom and the Netherlands in which you use synthetic bone marrow cells and low toxicity drugs to improve the um, health outcomes for children with leukemia. Synthetic bone marrow cells, Please tell us about this fascinating research and the conclusions you drew. Absolutely. So by synthetic bone marrow cells, what I mean is that they have been derived in the lab. So as I mentioned, a lot of cancer research uses mouse models, and these are very valuable. However, we need to find out improved uh, models. So one way to do this is via stem cell technology and organoids. And what is this? So if I were to take a sample of leukemia from a patient today and take it to the lab and put it in my tissue culture Petri dish, they would die within 48 to 72 hours. Now, why is this? Because cancer does not grow by itself. Cancer grows in the body, in the respective tissue, via interaction with the surrounding cells. Because this is lacking when we remove the cancer cells from the body, we cannot, number one, capture how the cancer cells interact with the surrounding to grow. We cannot capture that nurture effect in nature versus nurture. And secondly, we cannot even grow these cells because that's, that, that is not how they grow. So in order to address this challenge, my research group at Northumbria University, we came up with this model where we could use induced pluripotent stem cells that we derived from human cells, and we could then make any cell type of our choice using these induced pluripotent stem cell lines. And here we've made bone marrow cells, cells representing the bone marrow stroma. So these are fibrous cell types. And now we can use these artificial bone marrow cells or synthetic bone marrow cells to grow these leukemia cells. So we have successfully showed that we can now take samples from the hospital, from the patients, and we can use these patient-derived cells and we can put them in culture on our synthetic bone marrow and we can grow the leukemia cells. So here, that way, we can actually study cells directly from the patient or patient-derived cells. And secondly, we can understand, we don't have to study the cancer in isolation. So another model that is commonly used are called cell line models. And cell line models are again samples that have been taken from very aggressive cancers, particularly at relapse. So they may not have all the cell types that you see at diagnosis. The second thing is cell lines are basically cancer cells that have adapted to grow artificially in tissue culture environment. So it does not always capture how the cancer cells would grow in the patient. And that is why there is a lot of dependence on using mouse models, because there you can take the cancer cells, put them in the mouse bone marrow and study that interaction. But obviously there are caveats to that as well, as I mentioned before. 
And therefore here, what we've done is developed these synthetic mini bone marrows. And we've seen that actually we can grow patient-derived cancer cells on the synthetic bone marrow. And what's the benefit of that? We can see how the cancer cells behave within the bone marrow. And we can also see how to target these cancer cells. So if we've got a new therapy in mind, a new drug in mind that we want to test, we can actually test it using this model. And based on what information we get, whether it's a responder or whether the drug has not acted, this, you, this information is actually meaningful to the clinics because it, it gives us information on how different patients would behave or react to different therapy. It has the potential to do that at least. So it's fascinating stuff. And in the same vein, you're passionate about preclinical research, as we've discussed, um, in developing new cancer treatments. And I meant it was we've discussed it earlier, um, your project investigating 3D bioprinted micro tissues. This sounds like science fiction, it sounds like Star Trek to develop your patient-specific non-animal technologies developing drugs to treat cancer. So Break this, down, break this down for us, please, from start to finish. What are these technologies and how might they change the face of cancer treatment? Absolutely. So as we have identified now is that we need better drugs for children's cancer. And in order to do that, we need to have better research technologies known as preclinical models. And one of their key purpose should be a, they should be clinically translatable. They should mimic the patient adequately. And whatever data they give us, it should be meaningful in the clinics. With that in mind, we made these synthetic bone marrow. Initially, the work that is published in Cell Reports Medicine talks about a 2D model. So it talks about a co-culture model where we have these synthetic bone marrow cells. These are synthetic human-derived bone marrow cells. And then we grow our patient-derived leukemia cells on top of these. So it's a co-culture. We culture the two together. However, that has been done in a 2D format, one cell on top of the other. But as we discussed, we are not 2D. We are three-dimensional beings. And we need to think about cell polarity, cell conformation. And this is where organoids come in. So organoids are basically cells here, I'm going to refer to the human cell organoids or human organoids. They are cells which are derived from, uh, they are human cells, and they have basically been cultured in the lab so they can form synthetic three-dimensional micro tissues, as in very, very tiny tissues. Now, there are several ways of making these organoids. One are the ones we say they self-assemble. So we take different type of cells and we put them in a Petri dish and we use a special kind of Petri dish and we see that the cells all come together to form little round structures called spheroids. That's the simplest form. The next form is we have to think in our body, there are not just different kind of cells. There is also something known as extracellular matrix. Extracellular matrix helps the cells to function and talk to each other, but also has those key nutrients that we rely on so much. So the next step of making an organoid is to take these cells and to add the extracellular matrix, and then they start to form these three-dimensional structures, and actually they will show functionality as well. For example, if we make a bone organoid, 
then we will see mineralization. We will see formation of calcium deposits, which we see in the bone. If we think about a prostate organoid, we will actually see formation of the asana structures or the villi that we see in these um, organs. That is the second step. Now, making these organoids is a cumbersome procedure. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. And although it, obviously it, is, it has its own merits, if we are thinking about the clinics, then we want um, data to be generated rapidly. That data should be generated within a clinically relevant time frame, especially if we are thinking about making preclinical models for precision medicine. So where we are wanting to make this preclinical model, so for example, make a synthetic mini bone marrow. We've got patients today, we take cells from them, culture in our synthetic mini bone marrow, add the drugs, see how the drugs behave, and we then use that information guide our treatment of patients. So this is something which is still um, more at experimental stage, but I'm saying this is where the research could move towards. So in that situation, we really want to get this data as soon as possible, and we can't wait for weeks or months before we get such data. This is where bioprinting comes in. So bioprinting is similar to 3D printing. So 3D printing is layer by layer assembly of different substances. Bioprinting, as the name suggests, is layer by layer assembly of cells as well as extracellular matrix and chemical substances. So we have the formation of what we called micro tissue. So they are tiny, tiny tissues. However, they're called micro tissue because they can perform the correct function of that tissue. So this is the current project. Uh, we're very grateful to have received the support from the NC3Rs. We're very passionate about developing these 3D bioprinting. What are the benefits? We can have scalable platforms. So we can make hundreds and thousands of 3D bioprinted micro tissues. We, it is automated, so that removes any chances of any human error. And um, also it's more standardized. So when we are making these synthetic bone marrows, we are not worried that Maybe one we made when we were a bit tired and the other we made when we were fresh. No, they all get made similarly. And that, that, that is the project in a nutshell. To make these 3D bioprinted bone marrow microtissues, we can use these to grow patient-derived leukemia cells, find out how the cells are behaving, but importantly, do drug testing. If you have new treatments in mind that we want to test, we can actually test in this platform and this will give us a lot of information, a lot of patient-relevant information that could be useful in the clinics. So it's fascinating. Um, you know, it reminds me that I've been very privileged to work with great people with very diverse skill sets and ways of looking at the world in projects that I've worked on, uh, clearly in very different uh, areas of medicine. But again, it, it's required different people to come together. Can you discuss the multidisciplinary aspects of the, the the research projects you've been telling us about? And 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 I've certainly found it very stimulating. I presume you did too. Absolutely. So um, I think we are addressing a big challenge here. We want to find a safer and kinder treatment for children's cancer. This is not a one-person job. We need a team. And we need a team with different skills who bring their own expertise to the project. 
We need, obviously, clinicians. We need uh, biological scientists who understand the biology of the cancer. We need um, cancer research scientists, stem cell scientists, but we also need our engineering colleagues. Because when we think about technologies such as 3D bioprinting, we need a 3D bioprinter. We need um, the correct machine. We need the correct standard operating procedures to be in place. So I think that's the value of such projects, that they bring you not just working in isolation, but you're working with a lot of different people. And they all have their own different um, expertise that they bring to the project. And it's it's very stimulating to, to hear about their insight into the project, because there's always a different angle, an angle that you could have missed if you were just working with a, just one expertise um, of scientists or if you were just working on your own. So I think it's absolutely fascinating to be working with multidisciplinary research groups. And even when we think about our clinical colleagues, it's not um, it's not just about thinking about clinical cancer scientists, but it's all kinds of different clinical colleagues. Um, and I think that's that's absolutely essential in any kind of research. I don't think research should be about one person or a small group of scientists with one expertise doing an experiment in their lab. It should be collaborative, it should be multidisciplinary, and it should be cross-institutional. Our ultimate challenge is to um, find better treatments that are safer and also kinder to the children. So I don't think, I think we need to make as many friends as we can and come together to tackle this challenge together. Well said. So Deepali, I always like to finish with this question in these podcasts. If you could have three wishes granted for the future of healthcare, what would they be? Absolutely. So um, if I was fortunate to have three wishes granted for the future of healthcare, my wishes would be we do need to think about um, not just whether our treatment is curing the disease, which is very essential, but also at what cost. We need to think about safer and kinder treatments. And I genuinely hope from the bottom of the heart, not just with children cancer, but all cancers, we do come up with a treatment that has got lesser side effects, is safer, is kinder, and has got real value in improving quality of life and not harming it. Um, or that, that, that is a wish. And I, I do understand it's a wish because treating it in the first instance is such a big challenge. And I get that. So that's the first wish. The second wish is, I think, um, collaboration. Collaboration is, it, it can't, and I don't think this should just refer to clinicians working together or just researchers working together, but multidisciplinary collaborations where clinicians make friends with researchers and work together, and we make friends with um, engineering colleagues. And not it doesn't just have to stop there. We have mathematicians. We have all different expertises that come together to tackle something as disastrous as cancer. And the third wish would be not just to think about local collaborations within the university, within the group, but also think about regional, national, international collaboration. So I think that is absolutely key as well. We can learn from each other. And I think um, that 
yeah, I think that would be absolutely beneficial to improving healthcare for everyone. So wonderful wishes, very much in keeping with uh, with the 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 text of what you've said uh, today, really, Dipali. And I'm afraid that that's all we have time for on this episode of the EMJ Health Podcast. And I really want to extend my sincere gratitude to Dr. Dipali Pal for speaking with us today and sharing her valuable insights and, frankly, for all she's doing to improve the care of children living with cancer. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jonathan. And thank you, EMJ, for having me here. It was a pleasure talking to you and um, participating in this podcast. Fantastic. And we're going to have some details in the show notes um, so you can learn more about what uh, Dr. Pal is up to. Folks, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode and please tell your friends and colleagues about us. But until next time, this is your host, Jonathan Sakia. Thanks for listening and please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. <laughs>